Welcome to the Premier Podcast, where three lads discuss all things English football Premier. On today's episode, we'll have reflections on the FA Cup, including a huge win for sixth tier side Maidstone, some huge management news that's shaking up the footballing world. We'll look ahead to a full fixture list of midweek Premier League. We'll review the key weekend action across the EFL and we'll finish with Laura, who will talk us through Yeovil's weekend draw at St Albans, their fixture tomorrow night against Slough, and it's his turn at providing this week's trivia question. I'm your host, Alex Murphy, and once again, I'm joined by Tom Gallagher and Tom Lawrence. Boys, only one place to start with the FA Cup. Uh, Maidstone won 2-1 at Ipswich into the fifth round uh, of the FA Cup. Lauro, I think if memory serves me right, I tipped him up at 25-1. to So A, did you back them? And B, just reflections on uh, on that result for George Alicobi's men. Yeah, I did back them. I think by the time that I'd got on to um, William Hill, other betting sites are available. A lot of other people would listen to the pod because they'd been backed into 20s. Um, but watching the game, I, the, fir- the first thing that struck me about that was the obviously amazing result, amazing um, story for the FA Cup, which you probably needed this year because there's been lots of scepticism again about how uh, well received it is and how celebrated it is in the country. And it seems to be dwindling every year. To have Maidstone reach the fifth round is fantastic. I've been um, lucky enough to watch a lot of National League sale football this season, specifically Maidstone, Yeovil and every other team in the league. Uh, there are some good players, good managers, and uh, it's great to see. But the thing that struck me the most was just like how good their goals were. Like It wasn't like they had a game plan. They obviously wanted to nick a goal, defend and try and see it out, and they had to sort of get in front twice. But both of the goals were really well worked and really like clinical and ice cold. Um, from the striker that scored the first one, I think it was a midfielder that went through for the second. Um, names escape me at the moment, but lobbing the keeper like that, for this, particularly that first one in front of the Portman Road crowd, there must have been thousands and thousands of fans there, way more than Maidstone are used to playing in front of. And then what a moment for their fans, which looked pretty rowdy, didn't it, with some uh, explicit scenes coming out of uh, their celebration. But great for George Ellicobi. A little bit of a shame that they haven't got a Huge tie in the next round, but at least they'll still get a trip to the Rico or uh, or Hillsborough. So uh, fantastic for Maidstone and another fantastic advert for the English football pyramid, where a team in the sixth tier could go to Portman Road and do something like that. So well done, all involved. Yeah, indeed, and uh, part of the reason why I guess we started Pyramid Podcast really was to reflect on sort of footy, not just in the. Premier League. I did see their draw not the most kind of appetising out of what was available, but I did kind of see some people saying, well look, that's kind of maybe a sign of how far Maidstone have gone in the cup, where the fact that getting a big championship side in Coventry or Sheffield Wednesday uh, away is seen as a bit of a damp squib for them. But if they've beaten second place in there, maybe they're looking at that now. I know the prize money's really hotting up now for a club of that size. They might think, well, we can go and win again. And then suddenly, what are they into then? Will that be the quarterfinals, the last 16? Like, quarterfinals, unbelievable for them. So, yeah, well done to uh, George Ellicobi. Well done to Maidstone. Flying the flag for National League South. Obviously, uh, a league close to our hearts at the minute with the Glovers in there. But, um, yeah, big, big result for them. And I think right down to earth, because they've got a Kent Cup quarterfinal this week against Punjab United. So, from Portman Road to Punjab, so then I think got Yeovil next weekend uh, in the league. Some uh, some level of footy that they're bouncing about in there. Move on to another FA Cup game. So uh, Man United went to Newport yesterday, Tomo. Uh, United went 2-0 up. Looked like it was going to be plain sailing. Absolutely carving Newport apart. Um, looks like they played kind of wing backs and our, our wingers were getting in behind every time. 
started getting a bit greedy United, missed a couple chances and then a couple of decent work goals for Newport, one kind of uh, an absolute cracker, another one really well worked um, and suddenly looked a bit jittery for United. Yeah, and you've got to give Newport a lot of credit really because like you, like you mentioned there, we battered them really for the first 20-25 minutes, um, probably should have been 3-4 up, missed a couple of good, really good chances, Garnacho being the main culprit I guess because if he squares it, makes it three, it's game over. Um, the reality, of, I guess, of a Premier League club being 2-0 up at Newport in the FA Cup is that 2-0 should be game over. But when it's United, we've spoken time and time again this season that when something slightly negative happens, i.e. Um, concede a worldie, which you can, can do even at that level, um, Bryn Morris, I believe, unleashed a... A great strike, got a deflection, okay, a little bit lucky, but they they're back in the game, the crowd get up for it, and then it's how do you how do you react to that as a United um team who are in the Premier League should be able to deal with situations situations like that. And it wasn't the case really. And actually their second goal I thought was fantastic football. Um right from the goalkeeper's long ball, straight straight to their, I think it's their right winger, brought it down brilliantly, played in their striker who um, chested it down, knocked it down to the centre mid, um, sprayed it out to the left wing, first time cross, and then it was a, a brilliant finish. So sometimes you just got to applaud the opposition, even, even though it was League Two opposition, it was a great goal. Um, in the end, we get the win. Really frustrating, really, after after starting so well but at the end of the day it's a cup competition the only thing that matters is just winning and getting into the next round yeah I think actually United got a bit of a hard time for it yesterday Newport obviously conceding two goals against a team that are, are towards the bottom of league two I get it one's a worldie that's been deflected second one I thought was a well-worked goal I thought Varane was at fault for it Dallow maybe a bit out of position as well but yeah. on the whole I thought United carved them apart another team creates way more chances uh, scores way more goals with the chances that we created there but it's just kind of a cycle of where United are in the press and things that don't help Tomo um, is what's happening with obviously Marcus Rashford at the minute. So it sounds like he's taken his time off to go and visit a, an ex-teammate who now plays over in Northern Ireland, gone out on the Wednesday night, then subsequently, which seems to be what's caused the big trouble, gone out on the Thursday night and they're meant to be in training on the Friday and report back ready to get ready for Newport and has called in sick um, and obviously then made himself not available for training. Um, but just more kind of fallout that A, Eric Ten Hag doesn't need, but United as a whole don't need either. Yeah, and it's not... If this was Marcus Rashford, Rashford's first um, mishap or misstep, you'd potentially you could forgive him a little bit, although this is quite a big misstep. But he's had a couple of incidents this season. He's not played well this season. Man United haven't played well this season. Um and if you're a professional, these are the type of sort of decisions that you make in your life that kind of set you apart from the rest. If, if say, for instance, Erling Haaland did this, um, say, seven months ago or something, and he was just on the back of scoring a couple hat-tricks, Man, Man City have won three in a row, nothing would be said because they're winning, he's doing it on the pitch. But when Rashford's doing this, and the, as a fan, the one thing... It's that's hard to take, I guess, is look, we played Spurs 
10 days ago or whatever it was now and they had seven days off the players and then they come back and training on monday having seven days off train monday tuesday wednesday but then then they have thursday off so he's gone off to ireland to get pissed up both nights and and then not and miss training when he's had a week off a couple of days before if he wanted to go and let his hair down and get pissed up just go and do it then there's no problem it wouldn't even be a story now so he's not helped himself he's not played well this season so it's one thing after another with him and it's just it's just it's not for me really to to slate these players for going out and letting their hair down because we all know we all like to do it as well but we're not professional athletes playing for Manchester United football club and we're not on 325 grand a week and subs- and just quickly before I finish up, a big th- like point that us fans, I guess, aren't really happy with is he signed a three hundred twenty-five grand a week contract in the summer, and ever since then, it's gone downhill, and it, it's hard to to separate those two issues, where he's he's almost let his foot off the gas performance-wise. He looks like he's taken his eye off the ball professionally. And it's coincided with the fact he just signed a five-year deal worth 16, 17 million a year. Yeah, and Laurie, do you think that that just kind of highlights a complete lack of kind of respect for the manager, a lack of discipline at Man United, where Rashford, who really is an academy boy, would probably be one of those people that you'd say should care the most about the club, has that little respect that he's willing to just go out the night before he's supposed to be in training, knowing that everyone's going to be recording him on how modern society works and then calling sick to training. Yeah, definitely. When we talk about Man United, we quite often talk about cycles, don't we? And kind of Groundhog Day and it starts off where we get results and then eventually this sort of, then the, the murmuring start coming out of the dressing room, being leaked to the press about everyone doesn't like the training methods and no one likes Ten Hag. And then it normally finishes off with incidents like this. But one thing I will say is, um, I know like there started to be suggestions of being Rashford being linked um, with moves away and things like that. If I was Man United in the current situation, the current climate, although he's very, very frustrating, Rashford, and he has had a poor season, and if you're doing things like this off the back of a poor season, it looks even worse. No one would have cared last season, probably, where he was scoring every other week. Yeah, But he is still one of United's players with the highest ceilings. And if we he can rediscover the kind of form that he showed last season, where he was one of the best players probably in the world, then he's a very handy player to have. And just on the backdrop of um, restructuring the back room, it looks like there's a lot of sort of... Um, technical stuff happening at the club to make you better and have a better platform to push on next season, the season to come. I think Rashford is a player that you want there. So yes, no good for Ten Hag. Doesn't look good on Rashford. Um, of course, it's going to be blown up when you're in the midst of a poor season, but I think it should settle down and I don't think it should be like the last straw to sell him or anything like that. I think he should stay put and hopefully go again with a, another good season next season, maybe. Can I I'll just quickly on um, Ten Hag's dealing of the situation. Yesterday before the game, Man United released a statement um, to journalists basically saying that Rashford would miss the game totally. He's not in the squad because he was ill and he was too ill to travel. And then after the game, Ten Hag got asked about it and he just point blank said it was an internal matter and, and that he was going to deal with the situation. And... It's once again an example of how the club and the manager aren't quite aligned. And I, I'm not sure whether it's... I don't want to fully blame Ten Hag on this because 
I guess because English isn't his first language. And I don't think he's fully grasped the English language or how to communicate effectively in the English language. He can speak it, obviously, but it seems to me that he needs to be aligned with the club. Um, and I don't think he's dealt with it well because all, all he had to say was, uh, well, the club statement said he was ill, so he's ill. And then deal with yeah. it, then deal with the situation internally because we all know there is there has been an issue because obviously the videos and clips go around on social media. He, apparently he was vaping, apparently he was drinking. There's, there's pictures everywhere. So, but he doesn't need to feed the narrative by saying it's an internal issue. I'm going to deal with the matter when when the club has already released a statement saying he was ill. So it, it's it's confusing from all parties. Rashford unforgivable, but I don't think Ten Hag's covered himself in glory. No, I think you bang on there. He He's such a poor communicator, which is a massive skill for a manager in this country, whether it's with his players or whether it's hand, handling with the media. Like, look at the Jadon Sancho situation. Like, he almost made that way worse than it was, way earlier than it needed to be. Murph, you're always complaining about questions that Ten Hag has answered. And instead of, like, quashing them, like you, te- you say, T-Gale, like, agreeing with a club statement, he kind of throws fuel on the fire by, like, making it a little bit shady and making it seem more cloak and dagger. He's done it again with the Rashford thing. And, look, I don't want to um, stick the knife in any more on Ten Hag. I don't rate him at all. But communication's a huge thing. And whether English is your first language or not, it's not for Klopp, Guardiola, Mourinho, anyone like that. Um, but they get it right. And it's a massive part of the job in this country. Um, and probably all leagues as well. So you can't be shooting yourself in the foot with easy wins like that and just adding fuel to the fire, which I think he does way too often. There yeah. was um, there was an article recently about basically Man United players are getting um, pissed off, basically, with Ten Hag's communication style. And it actually drills down into that about his English not being the best. So do you remember when the club came out, or he came out, sorry, and said that we were in talks with Martial and Varane over contract extensions and the fans completely lost their head that we'd be offering Martial a new contract? It's not that at all. He just got his figure of speech wrong. Yeah. And rather than saying, so he was like, we're in talks with the player, but it that came out as we're in talks for a new contract. But actually we're not. We're letting him go for free in the summer. There was... Um, an- another incidence of that that's happened as well in the mainstream media with him. And it's like, uh, that was it. He he said yesterday, uh, Newport Newport did nothing. And what, what his actual point was, wasn't that Newport did nothing because people came out and said, well, they did enough to take you to two all. What he was saying was up until 2-0, Newport hadn't created anything and it took a bolt from a blue as a worldie to go through. But you can't feel sorry for him for that because... That's the whole part of it. Communication so big. The media is so big in the UK that if you're not comfortable doing English, get a translator. You know, Bielsa was a really successful manager, didn't want to speak broken English and get misinterpreted. So used a translator. Can you do that as Man United manager? I don't know. But yeah, look, I, I just think that as you boys have just said, communication is so key and he's not hitting that on any note. And when your job's under this much pressure, you've got to get that bang on. Yeah, I completely agree with you. But just one thing to to sort of stick up for him a little bit. Um, he's basically been put in charge um, from last season to effectively change the whole culture of Manchester United Football Club. And those players have not helped him. He's had time and time again where the players have let him down. And like I just said previously, we, he had seven days off Marcus Rashford to go and get pissed, to go and do whatever he wanted. And then... Three days in training, you've got a day off, 
and you go and do what he's done and not reported for training and it's affecting your ability to do your job. So, okay, Ten Hag hasn't dealt with a situation well, but these players, they're just putting him in the shit every single time and and delivering him hospital passes after hospital passes. So it is difficult to to deal with, I guess, if you're him. But and and on this occasion, I actually think it's mostly Rashford's fault. But Ten Hag is not solely, or he's not um, void of blame because I don't think he's dealt with it well either. But yeah, I just can't it's see. It's just a shame because as Rashford demonstrated last season. He's an unbelievable player when he's really confident and he's fit and he's firing. Um, but he's almost reverted. He's reverted back to type this season. So, and I, I wonder whether that's because of the off-field issues. You don't, you don't know, do you? I just can't see other managers in the league having players do that to them. I can't imagine a City player doing that to Pet. A because they'd probably be dropped and ultimately sold from the club. I can't see a Liverpool player having that little respect for Klopp to do that. And now, you know, we spoke, we've spoke. we got an episode about how Laurie would run through a brick wall for Big Ange. I can't see a Spurs player doing that either. Bearing in mind, Rashford's are probably our highest paid, most important, best player, pound for yeah, pound. Yeah, but just, just quickly, just quickly, the only thing that solves all of these issues are winning football matches. Because I guarantee you, in every single club, in the whole of the EFL, in the Premier League, there are issues like this every season. Because players are players are players, they're humans, they'll do they'll do things like this, whether it's um big things, small things, whatever. The only thing that will solve these issues are winning things. So say for instance, Carl Walker's had his issues with um his personal life, or Cancelo fell out with Pep Guardiola. These things all go like all sort of happened, but they go under the radar because Man City are winning everything. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Where yeah, and Man point. United, we're struggling. And they get it gets amplified and exasperate or exaggerated because we're not doing well on the pitch. And so the only thing to answer these criticisms will be to go and win games. And that's the manager's responsibility. He's in charge yeah. of the results at a football club. And it, you do sometimes feel a bit of sympathy for Etan Hag and like just beating him with one stick after another. But if you're going to be the manager of Man United, that's one of the biggest jobs in the world. So you've got to expect to be able to take the heat. And if you can't, then it's not the job for you. And again, I don't think it is, but that's a different story. Yeah. Right, we'll move on, boys. A couple of other results from the FA Cup just talk about. So Southampton Pyramid Pod Cup holders, they were, what, one minute away from losing the Pyramid Pod Cup? Um, To be honest with you, I think we were all probably hoping that Watford would hold on there just to give that a bit of a new lease of life. But uh, Armstrong came up uh, trumps for them in the 89th minute. I think it was Stuart Armstrong won it, Tomo, not Adam, and uh, grabbed sure, them yeah. a uh, a replay against Watford, where I'm sure they'll go on and win that replay and retain the cup. But just for a second, we thought that the Premier League Cup might be changing hands. And boys, I just want to touch on result not as important, but uh, West Brom nil, Wolves two. But just want to touch a little bit on your boys' thoughts on that kind of crowd trouble and the kind of build up to the game around that, and it felt like. To me personally, and I spoke to you about this off-air, Tomo, but it felt like there was a lot of intensity around this game built up in the media. There were sort of fan sessions where they were talking about the rivalry, the hatred. There's kind of other podcasts that have got a West Brom fan on it. Tom Garrett was talking about the intensity of it and how much, you know, it's likely to go off and that sort of thing. And then it feels like that just kind of all kind of built up into this like absolute frenzy and cauldron at the game on Sunday. 
the police even did it for 11.45 kickoff to try and minimise that, and it still managed to kick off. Well, look, the thing is, you can we can sit there, there. When these things happen, it's a multitude of reasons, and there's loads of different factors into it. Okay, yeah, the media building up the the um, the derby might not help, but what do you want the media to do? Not talk it up. We spoke a lot about how bad the FA Cup has marketed um, over the last over the last couple of weeks, and the media marketing this game as a massive derby only increases interest in it. So you can't expect the media not to do that. <clears throat> I think it was the first time the game had been played in 12 years. Um, and at the end of the day, in every single set of supporters in the country, there's helmets and there's play and there's fans who will do silly things. So you can't, you can't um, legislate for individuals doing stupid things. But I suppose we'll talk later about the Port Vale fan who ran onto the pitch to chase the referee. And it's one of those things where is it an individual responsibility where you blame the individual and consequence him? Or is it a societal thing and a cultural thing that's growing and the game's becoming more unsavoury? I don't think it is. Those incidents are few and far between now. Um, We're only 32, aren't we? So we, we, we never sort of lived through the dark ages, I guess, of English football before we were born. But... I don't. It's just an individual, and a and a big derby, and these things can happen. I don't. I don't think it was that bad. No, I. I there's no way it was twelve years ago. The last they played, they were both in the prem, like the season before last, in front of but, a crowd. Ah, right. Okay, that's what it is then. Because I, for I thought it was a bit embarrassing. Like I kind of agree with what you said, Murph. Like it's all right building up a derby. The same with Newcastle and Sunderland the other week, but it it was kind of like they had to put something on the end of it because it was moved to 11.45, because there was a load of hype for it. It was kind of gave the fans a little bit more of an excuse to kind of do something. And I know we're only talking about 0.01% of people in there, but I mean, for God's sake. But the the only other thing I would say is you never would have seen like the players go down the tunnel and the game be called off for half an hour back in the olden days, would you? So it just shows how far oh, we've come, come from there that this these things don't really happen anymore. And uh, we've got to take well, a pause the, from the, the game. Project- but- yeah, the the procedure, the the protocols have come on so much that basically, I guess the ambulance and the um the guys, um the first responders, they have to be, there has to be certain amount of them ready in case something happens on the pitch. Yeah. Um, and obviously, if they're all going towards the crowd to sort that out, um, they can't legally. Um, through the procedure, they can't carry on the game until those first responders are back on in their positions, ready to deal with other issues. Potentially, you know, because we've seen like heart attacks on the pitch lately with Tom Lockyer yeah. and all these kind of things. Um, so I think it's more of a procedural issue. And also, uh, one t- one thing to note was that actually the incident happened near the, the players' families where they all sat. So okay. I don't think they were in any state or interested in carrying on the game or anything like that. Um, And I guess that they're just following what the referee says. If the referee tells them to go off, they go off. Um, I do, I do understand what you mean though. You know how, like when the police change, change the kickoff and say this, this derby so dangerous that we've got to do it at 1145. They're almost telling the fans that look how dangerous you all are. So you're expecting trouble. Yeah. Yeah, but what what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to do it at 3pm, let them get pissed up? 
it's yeah, just we, you yeah, you suggested definitely. that they drink through from Saturday night, Tommy, yeah. and look what that <laughs> led to. Well, they did it. Yeah. They did well, it. Just... They did it. Eleven forty-five. They did it. Eleven forty-five kickoff, and that's the first game I've seen in a long time that had to be postponed because of fights in the crowd. Yeah. So it didn't work, did it? Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm sorry. I, I can't. I still. I know that we had a couple se- or a season without fans. It can't be twelve years since West Brom and Wolves played. They're both like yo-yo teams in the championship and the prem. That can't be right. I know that's not what we're talking about, but I'm going to have to dig into that because I cannot see that they've avoided each other since 2012. Well, Wolves, West Brom, head-to-head. Let me have a look. That can be your trivia question. I just can't get on board with it. Why why are you looking for that, Tommy? Go on. Here you go. They played twice in 2021, but that was obviously no crowd. And they played in 2012. That's mental. So, so, and it's because they've just avoided each other. Wolves were down when West Brom were up, and now West mm-hmm. Brom are down. The Wolves are up. That's all, that's all it is. Crazy One of those stats. anomalies that football throws up. Very weird. So, any repercussions, Tommy? We'll come and support Vale a bit later. Obviously, Wolves, West Brom fans. There. Do you think that like the way around it is like well? Single out the minority by um, sort of affecting the majority because it's like if you do a stadium ban now for Wolves and uh, West Brom, no. so like Wolves have to play United on Thursday in front of an empty stadium, then you kind of put the minority, the pressure on them that they're affecting it for everyone. Or do you think that they were doing that regardless of things like that, like stadium bans and stuff like that? They're, they're kicking off yeah. regardless. Yeah, these the helmets are helmets and they'll always be helmets. And like you see... They do these things just like the video themselves, just for social media likes, and and or they'll just do them just for the sake of doing them. You always have to consequence the individual, in my opinion, um, just because, like we're we're talking about these these sets of fans here, but ninety nine point nine percent of the fans in the grounds were good fans going for a good game, and at the end of the day, right, us football fans, we love. We love the passion and we love the rivalries and we love like the celebrations and the banter between the crowds and the and the needle. And sometimes with all of that mixed into some like when you mix that all in, all of those ingredients, sometimes it it doesn't quite work and you get some helmets doing bad things. But yeah, but you can't have all of that without sometimes getting the negative. I don't think because otherwise then no. it becomes watered down and a little bit robotic and boring. And that's not what English football is about. No, I, I do agree with you. It's just about how you kind of stamp it out, like stadium bands for individuals, etc. It's just, do, do you put more pressure on them by thinking about overall, what their passion is, their football club. So if they can't go and watch them and the crowd, why the crowd can't go and watch them and that then affects their results on the pitch, does that potentially stop it? But you, you're right, it probably doesn't. Um, if they want to kick off, they're likely to kick off. So I do get that. Boys, let's move on from the FA Cup. Um, some news that broke last week, I think Friday morning, that kind of shocked the world, Loro. Um, Jurgen Klopp's going to step down from Liverpool at the end of the season. Just A, your thoughts on it, but be a little bit on the timing of it as well. Well, I think it's really sad news for English football fans, obviously for Liverpool, but we're talking about Jurgen Klopp. He is one of the best managers that we've ever had. He's implemented a style of play that's been consistently good. Okay, they've ran into a very good Manchester City and Pep Guardiola era, where whereby people are saying, well, he's only won one Premier League and one Champions League. But 
to even win one Premier League within the Pep Guardiola era is a magnificent achievement. And you can see from the kind of outcry from the Liverpool fans just how powerful a figure he is there and how highly respected he is. And in football management, uh, loyalty and kind of unlimited tenure is a really, really rare commodity. But he has that there. He was almost unsackable, probably was unsackable at Liverpool. And it was always going to be his decision when he went. I don't know exactly when he signed a new contract, but it didn't feel like it was that long ago. Um, so it is a little bit weird, the timing, isn't it? Um, I Presumably, I think it came out that he made the decision in November and presumably, um, I don't know, some journalists maybe have got hold of it and asked them for comments so they knew that they had to sort of move up the timeline. I don't know. But, um, f- you know, from a, I'm an English football fan, not a Liverpool fan. I will miss Jurgen Klopp being in the Premier League um, and his... Love him or hate him, he's box office, isn't he? And he always provides a story and always provides some great teams. He's made players out of players that weren't players before. Um, he's made teams into Champions League and Premier League winning sides that probably shouldn't have been on paper. And that's all testament to him. So, um, yeah, Liverpool fans, enjoy the next few months and it will be a very interesting summer for you. Tommy, we spoke on the last pod, actually. It was quite um, spooky timing, really, about Jurgen Klopp. And I was listening back and I mentioned to you about, um, obviously, they they'd beaten Fulham at the time they beat Norwich at the weekend I said to you about the quadruple uh being on which we kind of laughed at a bit but do you think that there's a bit in the timing from Klopp I know get Laurie's point that it might have just been that there was journalists coming saying look you announce it now or or we're gonna break it um but do you think there's a bit in the timing as well where it's his last season he's trying to galvanize the the, uh players galvanize the fans to, to try and win as many trophies as possible Nah, nah. See, I think the timing of the announcement is, um, I guess, testament to the type of bloke Jurgen Klopp is and he's and the type of leader he is. And he wanted to be front and centre. He wanted to be the one to address the fans. He wanted to be the one to tell the players. Um, so whether or not, like Laurie says, it might have been a journalist who's got hold of the story, etc. I actually think... Um, what it is, it's respect. It's a respect to Liverpool Football Club because they need to now put the feelers out to see who they can um, appoint. And not only that, but his backroom staff has left as well. And I think Pep Linders in particular wants to go out and become a manager. So once he tells his agent to tell clubs that he's in for, do you know what I mean? Journalists start getting an agent, start get putting two and two together and getting four. Um, so, look, I, I think it's a really understandable bit of um, timing, I guess, from from Klopp um, and Liverpool. I don't think it's got anything to do with whether they want to galvanise um, the players to or motivate the players to go and win those trophies any more than they already will. I do believe the announcement, though, will galvanise the players because the players clearly absolutely love him. I've done... You, you sort of canvass social media and talk sport radio phone-ins and you see um, a lot of, I guess, hate and criticism um, about the loving and the, um, the coverage that Klopp has got because people say, well, he's not died or he's only resigning. But the reality of Jurgen Klopp is, and this is me coming from a massive Manchester United fan and someone who absolutely... Uh, they're our biggest rivals, Liverpool. And when Klopp was appointed, I was absolutely gutted because I loved him from his time at Dortmund. And he embodies everything you want in a leader of your football club. 
And we speak a lot in this podcast about how football is escapism. And it's an escape from um, your normal life, the struggles you're dealing with, whether it, whether it might be, um, I don't know, you've just moved to a new city, you're struggling to make friends. I'm going to go a little bit deep here, but um, just bear with me. Um, yeah, you just moved to a new city, you're struggling to, to make friends or something, but you go to the pub, you watch the game, football centres you wherever you are in your life. And it, and it, I read a couple of articles in it, and, and one of them mentioned the quote from Arrigo Saki, which said, football is the most important of the least important things in life. And Jurgen Klopp, I think, embodied that spirit. Um, and so, okay, he only won one Premier League. And okay, he only won each trophy four times. And maybe he should have won more trophies. But that's not what football or success um, is about. And that's not why Liverpool fans are so devastated that he's gone. And it's almost like, I spoke a couple, um, a little bit to a couple of Liverpool fans and they said it's like almost losing a family member. And, and I read, let me just read out um, a paragraph from an article from Jonathan Liu, who um, is a art, he's a writer from the Guardian and he's, he's a very good writer. And look, he, he basically put, um, sort of sums it up better than I ever could. So let me just read this out. Look, Football has never been purely an intellectual exercise and it's never been purely a professional pursuit. At its best, it is the background music to life, the backdrop to nights in and nights out and come downs and breakdowns and hookups and breakups. Not everybody in the naval adoring world of football really gets that. Somehow you always felt Klopp did. Liverpool are not my club and Klopp has never been my manager but perhaps the greatest tribute you could pay him is that sometimes I wished he was. And that basically sums up Jurgen Klopp's time at Liverpool, I think, quite well, because, okay, he's not had the time that Fergie had at United, but he's basically the modern-day Sir Alex Ferguson, I think, for that football club. So I echo everything Loro said. I'm... I'm as a, Man as a Man United fan, it's exciting times because it means that Liverpool will not be as good as they, they, they are. Um, but as an English football fan, it is gutting to see that he's leaving. Um, I know I've banged on a bit there. but No, it's fine. It's, um, it, it's clear to see sort of how much Klopp is, has affected the English game where people can speak so passionately about him without being a fan. And you obviously a direct rival there, Tomo. Laura? Yeah, emotional tribute from Jurgen Klopp's number one fan there. This is the question that I wanted to ask you both, right? This is the question I wanted to ask you. You know when Fergie, you made it, I, I agree with your comparison to Fergie. He's like the boss of the whole place, isn't he? Like, Stephen Jarrett said when he went in there to be like the under-18s coach or whatever, Jurgen Klopp's just got the whole place on strings, which is what you want. And obviously we've seen its success at Man United with uh, Sir Alex before. But when Sir Alex Ferguson left, the timing of that, a lot of people said... Fergie's had a look at that squad. He, he won his last league title, didn't he, 2013. And he thought, I'm getting an awful lot out of this squad. Man City are coming through. And this might actually be the right time for me to go because I'm not sure we can go again here and challenge in the next few years. And I look at Liverpool and I they're obviously they're top of the league and Klopp is getting an awful lot out of the players he's got this season. But Salah, 32. Alisson, 32. Van Dijk in his 30s. Is he looking at 
who's coming through and what the team looks like upon a backdrop of Newcastle spending money, City still there, United going again, Spurs coming as well, and thinking we actually might struggle to consistently keep up with these boys now in the next couple of years. And has that come into his thinking? Whereby, let's go all out. Let's use, I think it does come into it, the emotion of me leaving, because Liverpool's an emotional place. All the Champions League nights and everything like that, they always do so well in Europe because they create that cauldron. Maybe he thinks, let's go out on a high, but we're really going to struggle with the squad that we've got going forward to compete right at the very top as we were in 2017, 18, 19, etc. What do you think about that? I disagree yeah. with that. I, I, I kind of agree, though, Toilet. Let me just um, say this, that I I saw something earlier basically saying how it was like a, the kids are all right, basically, tribute to Liverpool about how despite Klopp heading off, despite Salah maybe looking at Saudi, you touched on Van Dijk and Alisson. They were looking at players like Bradley, who settled in at right back in Trent's absence. I think there was a centre mid, McConnell, who played against Norwich, who looked really good. Um, obviously, they've got like that young centre-back, Comsa, who played next to Canate, who's moment to come through. We've spoken that we thought their midfield was like, but actually, Graven Birch, Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott, um, McAllister have all looked good this season. But I think that we've spoken at length about how much a manager can come into that. And I think similar to that Sir Alex Ferguson bit there, it's Sir Alex Ferguson managed to win a league because of his genius with players, and no disrespect to him, but you had the likes of like, you know, Darren Gibson and people like that and you, you, Fabios and Raphaels and that sort of thing. And I think he looked around and thought, you know what? Maybe this is the right time for him to leave. He said that he's knackered Jurgen Klopp, but he'd only recently re-signed on after saying that it was potentially he was going to leave soon. So I, I definitely think that that comes into it. But Tomo, you, you might think different. I just, I just think you have to take Klopp for, um, or take Klopp at face value. And he says he's running out of energy. He could have, he could have left last year when they were really struggling. I think he, I believe he wanted to, but he didn't want to leave Liverpool in a really bad place. He's reset the team over the summer and definitely the midfield. Um, and like we said in the previous podcast, this is probably the first year in a three-year cycle of a new team. And I just think he hasn't got the energy. Um, I just think you've just got to take him at face value. But yeah, okay. He probably he probably sees this season as his best chance to win a league. Um because Man City have had that drop off after the treble, etc. Um and that would be a fitting way to end, I guess. Um But look, he, he's his leadership style is all about relationships and that energy, isn't it? So if he hasn't got it and he doesn't feel like he can give his best for the club, then I think it's probably the best thing for him to leave. I'd... Yeah, so that's my that's my two pence. Is this the same Klopp you want us to take at face value that after the Tottenham game, we, he was screaming for a replay. We all sat here and said, no, nah, we don't really want a replay. He's just lying to try well, and create different. a narrative to help him. I think there that's, is something in it. And like you said, is midfield at the moment, we looked at the start of the season or even a little bit later on and it's Endo and it's Graven Birch, it's Curtis Jones. And they're they're playing well at the moment. But I'm not sure they play. I'm not sure they're a top of the table midfield with a different manager. Is what I'm trying to say. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am as well, um, because it would be great to see someone to come in and succeed him. But how how uh, sort of almost reversely poetic is it that that position was always supposed to be Steven Gerrard's, and it now looks like it might be his former midfield teammate Xabi Alonso who's doing things over in Germany. Um, I think he's the top yeah. of the bookies 
favourites, isn't he? Yeah, but and that's obviously it's a moment in time, isn't it? He's obviously doing a great job there. But what what we're talking about is that's the challenge for their next manager is to get the best out of these current players because Jurgen Klopp may potentially go and win the Premier League this season with this current group of players. And that's the challenge for the next manager to match that. And that was the challenge for David Moyes. You're saying that, like, in hindsight, it's obviously easy to say that Fergie left um, an ageing squad, but we won the league that year by 11 points. High-performing teams go in cycles, right? And I think Klopp's now bowing out at the top, albeit had a bad bad season last year by his standards. He might have a better one this year, but I think he's going to bow out at the top where he's thinking, I don't want to now be manager for the next three years and just get worse and worse as other teams get stronger in this high-performing cycle of your Allisons. We've seen Fabinho leave. We've got Van Dijk who's suddenly questioning whether he'd stick about Allison getting a bit older. And then they start finishing sixth or seventh and people start calling for, is it time for Klopp to finish? Has Is he passed it? A bit maybe like you're seeing with Mourinho now. He's bowing out on his terms like Fergie did, which when you're that level of manager is way better than sort of just aimlessly carrying on with it and potentially getting sacked. I think that's what he's looking to do there. Yeah, and I agree with you, Tom. It is the job of the next manager to come in. The, the, the worry, I think, for Liverpool fans is how easy that is that going to be? Because Jurgen Klopp will go down as one of the best Liverpool managers and Premier League managers of all time. But it is quite right. He's still only got one Champions League and Premier League out of that. Now, I think that's a good achievement. But he's at, he's had the Salas, the Manes, the Firminios. Do you know what I mean? The next person's going to come in with probably a worse squad and he's going to have that act to follow with probably greater competition from more than just Man City. So, you know, talk about poison chalice. Liverpool Football Club's a great place to be, but it's going to, they are very, very big shoes and big aspirations to fill. And it's a huge job for whoever, whoever does get it. So it'd be interesting to see who they go for. And sometimes, I know it's easy to look back, but you always say, or we said with the Man United one, the job to get was the one after Moyes. We're 13 years down the line, and it turns out the job to get was one about seven managers after Alex Ferguson. And you can very, very quickly um, find yourself in the wilderness, which Liverpool won't want. So let's see if they can avoid the Man United blueprint and uh, get it right. I'm friends with a, a big Liverpool fan, and he was uh, saying that there was potential that, uh, is it FSR, their, their owners, Tomo, that they were basically a couple of years ago in conversations about having a behind-the-scenes documentary like we've seen with other clubs, and Klopp kind of said that he'd quit if that was to ever happen and that would be quashed. But there were rumours up that that was gaining momentum again, and so potentially that had, uh, that had something to do with the Klopp bit, which would, um, would be absolutely devastating for Liverpool fans and would completely turn them against their ownership if anything does come out. Uh, of that so just on just on FSG it is not FSR yeah but, sorry um, basically they've had a couple of missteps haven't they over the last five ten years since Klopp's been there I think nine years especially the Super League and Klopp has been that cult of personality that has shielded those owners from that kind of criticism I guess um, Klopp was the first manager I believe to um, publicly um, go against the Super League and go against his owners, um, which is something, I guess, to credit him for. Um, but that's another sort of factor that you just made a good point there, is how well will FSG do now without that Klopp shield? Because he's been able to shield them from your sort of typical ownership criticisms because he's such a big personality and he's such an impressive leader. So that's another one to look out for. Definitely. And just before we move on, um, 
we just touched on Xavi Alonso, bookies' favourites. Tommy, you mentioned moment in time, and I do think there's a bit of that with Bayer Leverkusen having a great season, but still not won anything yet. Still a long way to go in their season. They could obviously derail over the uh, coming months. But do you think it will be him? Do you think that Liverpool, if, if you were in the ownership position, would you be looking closer to the Premier League like a Deserby or trying to prize a big Ange away from Spurs? Just your thoughts on that? Yeah, I actually think um, if Ange wasn't at Spurs, he would be the perfect guy for Liverpool. Um, he just strikes me as that kind of well cult of personality, a little bit like a little bit like Klopp. But look, it's difficult. Deserbi and Xabi Alonso will be right up there. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a toss of a coin, really. Uh, I think Deserbi, he seems perfect for Man City's next manager. Um, he seems like, I know Omar Barada's just been appointed the new Man United CEO and apparently he was really high on De Zerbi replacing Guardiola. So maybe De Zerbi um, becomes Man United's biggest target if Eric Ten Hag gets sacked. It's just, it's one of the, you just, it's hard to predict really because we're six months away from the end of the season and a hell of a lot can happen now. Obviously, Xabi Alonso doing brilliant at the minute, but they could drop off, go out of the Europa League, go out of um, the Bundesliga title race, and then all of a sudden it's like he's not so they're not so high on him. So a lot can happen between now and then. Yeah, and I think generally when we discuss um, the next managerial appointment at any club, we're, we're normally talking upon a backdrop of someone's just been sacked or someone hasn't done well enough. So it's easy to look in a different direction and think, well, we need this guy because he plays football. We need this guy because of that. Jurgen Klopp's someone that no one wants to lose. So he's almost irreplaceable and it makes it harder to know what the best thing to do is because there isn't another Jurgen Klopp out there yeah. you can just go and get. Or if there is, we we haven't seen him. So whoever they get is going to be a risk and it's going to be a little bit different to what we've got in Klopp at the moment at Liverpool. Um, so really interesting to see. But you are right. You know, when Sir Alex Ferguson was replaced with David Moyes, you can't help but feel that maybe the fact that he'd only ever managed Everton and Preston was a little bit of a facet in whether he could garner the respect of such massive players and stuff like that. And will there be a case of that at Liverpool? Um, having said that, Xabi Alonso was a big name as a player. So do they go for someone known and respected in the managerial game? Do they go for someone like um, Xabi Alonso, who's young and up and coming and is a bit of a club legend? Maybe. Um, I don't think it'll be Steven Gerrard anymore, though. No, I don't either. Just a final point, boys. We'll obviously um, touch on this throughout the rest of the season into the summer, but we might be in a position if Ten Hag was to leave that you've got the Man United job available, the Liverpool job available, the Barcelona job available with Xavi leaving. And there was an article, I know Arteta has come out and rubbished it, but an article from a respected kind of Barcelona newspaper called Sport that he was um, potentially going to leave Arsenal as well so there might be some massive Premier League jobs available um, the, next well, season the word, yeah the word respected Barcelona um, like uh, sports publication probably a little taking it a little bit too far I think actually that news story was um, a little bit of mischief making from Barca there because actually I don't think Barcelona are that in a, that good position to prize of um, Arteta away from Arsenal um, these days but that's by the by um, interesting and exciting times and like I said I know I've spoken so highly about Klopp and about Liverpool um, football club but as a Man United fan it's exciting because it's that 
it's that hope that they're not going to be as good and that hope that we can be the next ones who are as good because the successful sides always go in cycles. Yeah, definitely. Boys, let's look at some of the weekend action then. So this must be the um, second half of the first games of the season, actually, because Chelsea, uh, Liverpool have got Chelsea at home in the league. Arsenal go away to Forest and Arsenal have lost their previous three visits to Forest. So City ground, not a very easy place to go and be really intrigued to see how they get on. Um, Villa versus Newcastle. And that was 5-1 in a reverse fixture earlier in the season on the first game. And that's where Sir Alex said that he was uh, potentially impressed, most impressed by Villa that weekend, despite losing 5-1. But some big games there uh, towards the top of the table. You've got Wolves versus Man United. Wolves haven't lost in seven games now. Um, and United's, United haven't lost in three and their treatment room's now empty. In. And you've also got Man City versus Burnley, which is a master versus apprentice there in um, the whole Pep versus uh, Vincent company. So some big games there. But um, any in particular, Tomo, there, other than the Wolves and Man United game uh, that you like the look of? I've, you can bet your bottom dollar that Wolves are going to beat Man United. <laughs> I don't know whether it is Wednesday or Thursday. Um, they have had a bit of a gripe, I guess, against Man United ever since that Onana penalty incident at the start of the season. And you can just see it now because Onana's already been kicked out of um, AFCON, so he's on his way back. You can just see him starting the game and making an absolute ricket and losing. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my only sort of prediction for this this week. My ask would be if anyone listening to the pod knows whether Erling Haaland is going to be fit enough to play or not tomorrow, um, or Wednesday, sorry, then please do private messages and let me know because I've wildcarded and if he's not going to play, I've got an awful lot of money to spend and it could be Tony and it could be Foden. So, yeah, let me know. Yeah, we haven't touched on FPO in a few weeks, actually, boys. I've... uh... I've got Haaland in. I wildcarded last week and I was like, I'm going to take the hit and just have him on the bench until uh, he's back fit. Otherwise, I'd then be scrambling about trying to find the additional money for him. But uh, yeah, I think my move is getting De Bruyne in as well. And I've got Foden and I'm going to go for the Foden, KDB, Haaland till the end of the season. Um, And if they explode onto the scene, that could uh, fire me up our mini league. So yeah, looking forward to uh, seeing if Haaland's back this week. Move on to the EFL, boys, and we'll just preview some of the um, action that happened on the weekend. So, Lauro, Sunderland won. We spoke on Mickey Beale a bit before and pressure right on him. I think he's had some pretty inflammatory uh, remarks as well that he's made to uh, to the fans um, in, in recent kind of uh, press conferences. But a good win for them against Stoke. And we spoke about them needing a striker as well. They've been linked with Kiefer Moore this week as well. So potentially some good news there for Sunderland. Well, Kiefer Moore would be perfect, first and foremost, at getting on the end of all the chances on and off the ground that Sunderland create. But did you notice before the game against Stoke, um, they sort of quickly flung out a club communication and it was that Alex Pritchard had asked to leave the club. Um, he, yeah. made, he withdrew himself from selection and didn't want to play. And I don't know, unless you boys know any more than that, it seems to me like a bit of a falling out maybe between him and the manager. That's what all the fans are in the comments saying. So that's not a good look. Um, if he's not got the media on side, he's definitely not got the fans on side, and he ain't got the players on side. I mean, three one is a very good win, um, and a poor result for Stoke not being able to capitalise on uh, 
a kind of negative atmosphere around Sunderland at the moment, but I still don't think it looks good for Mick Mill. Um, having said that, I think they're level sixth. I think they're sixth, seventh, and level on points for the playoffs. So again, it makes a mockery, I think, of the managers, uh, the manager they let go early in the season, and Tony Mowbray. Because if they would kept him, there's no way he would have done worse than what they've done in the meantime. Yeah, there's there's a bit of that north north south divide there going on. I noticed in his pre-match press conference, he he basically. I think he got asked a question about how he's, he's been getting stick for being a Cockney, for being from London. And he's like, well, I can't change my accent. I've not changed my accent for the last 40, 50 years, however long I've been alive. So I'm not going to change it now. And it's, it is a little bit bristly and a little bit prickly for this time of his te- in, in his tenure. Uh, but It's just not but, a good fit, is it? Uh, yeah, you know it doesn't what? look like it. Yeah. It doesn't look like it. But at the end of the day, look, Kiefer Moore. If that does come off, that would be a fantastic signing um, at that level. And they do need. We spoke a little bit. They do need like a talisman um, that your Jack Clark can play off and assist. And and I, I would have said Pritchard, but it looks like he won't play for the club again. But it's a difficult one. But look, he's he's coming off the back of a three nil three one win, so little bit of positivity, maybe. Jack Clark linked with Lazio in the last couple of days of the transfer window. Apparently yeah, they've uh, right. wanted him for 15 mil, but um, Sunderland say that's not even close to what they'd be looking for. I think he'd be a big part in firing them back up into the Prem if they were to go up, uh, albeit by the playoffs. So, uh, yeah, I think that was a bit low ball from Lazio. Uh, just a bit of transfer news from the Championship as well. So, Ali Al-Hamadi, who's away currently on international duty at the Asia Cup, uh, with Iraq, he has apparently uh, finalised in a move to Ipswich for £1 million, uh, Tomo from AFC Wimbledon. Obviously, someone we've touched on throughout the season. I think he's up to 13 league goals, got six or seven assists as well in his 23 games. Um, but Ipswich obviously bolstering their ranks up front, albeit a bit of a gamble for a player from League Two. Yeah, but for a sort of newcomer EFL fan like myself, it's, it, I think... That one's really interesting to keep an eye on over the next six months if it does go through. Because we spoke a lot about Langstaff potentially making the jump. And we spoke a lot about this player, Al Hamadi, um, being really impressive for Wimbledon. So I just want to I just want to see how he does in the championship and how he beds in. And um Ipswich, I do think they need a spark because I think they've lacked that a little bit in the last six weeks. Maybe there um the squad depth's not quite as well, it's definitely not quite as strong as the um, their other three competitors going for that automatic promotion. So, look, we, we've all individually said that he's looked really good for Wimbledon this season. So it can't be, it's going to be a good sign-in, you'd like to think. Yeah, so he, he signed, they've announced it today, Ipswich. Um, quick, strong, powerful, eye for goal, hard to play against, lots of assists as well. I think he'll. I think Ipswich particularly is a great fit because they're a squad of players that aren't names. They're all players that you'd have said were League One level a year ago. And I'm not just saying that because Ipswich were in League One. They're not household names. Um, you know, the likes of Wes Burns, Connor Chaplin, um, Broadhead, who they've got known from Everton, um, who's been down at Wigan and Sunderland as well in League One. Um, Kieran McKenna's found a way of galvanising them into a team and making them a force. And I think, like you said, they need a bit of a spark now to go again after January. They've hit a bit of a lull. I think that's a perfect sign-in um, from every aspect you look at it. 
And players coming up from League One and Two into the Championship doesn't always work. Um, I think last season or the season before, Bristol City signed um, Mometi from Wickham. They don't play him enough, but then every now and again you get an Adebayo that Luton signed from Warsaw that no one had ever really heard of, and now he's in the Prem scoring some goals and playing well. And I think Al Hamadi is going to be on the um, successful side of that, and I think Ipswich is a great fit for him. So, yeah, well done, Tractor Boys. Apparently, they want a second striker in as well, or second forward player before the deadline as well. So, I wonder well, whether they might... Well, I'd see them might... link with Keeper Moore, because he yeah. paid for them under Mick McCarthy. So, that's another option for him. And if I was Keeper Moore, it feels like... I know they've hit a little bit of a sticky patch of form, but they're still second in the league, I think. So, I'd probably rather go to back to Ipswich on common ground. But, let's see. Yeah, apparently Sunderland, Ipswich, and I think it might be Coventry all in for Kiefer Moore. So a few different options there. One, obviously, very much going for automatic, and the other two, sixth and seventh, and very Cardiff much in the is. playoff phase. Cardiff. Is Cardiff. He, was he at Cardiff before yeah. Loro? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe that might be a, a bit of a sway for him. But if it was a toss-up between Ipswich and um, Sunderland, as you say, then uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see which way he goes with that couple games of midweek action for the championship just to touch on boys um Coventry versus Bristol City obviously touched on uh how well Coventry are doing and then Leicester uh they're at home to Swansea tomorrow night as well so um yeah another important game for for Leicester weekend results from League One so Portsmouth win at Port Vale and Tomo you touched on the uh fan on the pitch chasing the the ref um not everyone's likely to have seen that who's listened. So can you just explain a little bit of context behind that? Yeah, okay. So Portsmouth get a penalty late on. Um, and to be fair to the referee, it was a stonewall penalty. Um, but Port Vale, the players clearly had a gripe with him because of an incident just before the penalty um, where they should have got a free kick, but they didn't. And then Portsmouth go down go down the other end and, and get a penalty. Colby Bishop steps up, scores the goal. Massive goal for them, as we spoke um, about their sort of, well, similar to Ipswich, really. They're lulling form over the last four or five weeks. So it was a massive win for them. But then I think towards the end of the game, just before full time, a Port Vale fan, I shouldn't laugh, but a Port Vale fan runs onto the pitch and he's going for the referee. And the referee clocks him just in time, really, and pegs it away. And I know we sort of laugh about these kind of incidents and they are kind of funny, but the reality of that situation is it, it only takes one mental fan with a knife to go on the pitch and just stab a referee or something. And then it's like a complete, uh, it sort of changes the incident from a slightly humorous and a little bit funny to really, really serious. So... It's a difficult one. It's it's not something you'd like to see. And we spoke a lot about referees this season and the challenges of VAR and criticising all of those involved. And and it feels like there is a growing culture in this country of blaming referees for everything. And and this is, I guess, a, a natural um, extension of that, is that fans feel empowered to go on the pitch and... and well, he hasn't physically attacked him, but it looked like he was about to. So I don't know what you boys think of it, but it's it's, it's unsavoury. Yeah, well, it's uh, very much unsavoury. I just think that 
one thing that really annoyed me is I saw a top journalist say that it was like really depressing to see none of the players help the ref. And I'm thinking to myself, what, what this guy's like, obviously really, really pissed off. And as you say, Tom, it takes one idiot to potentially have somehow got a blade or something sharp into the ground or have something on him. What on earth was a player's like duty to try and intercept that? It's got to be down to better stewarding, policing and, and that sort of thing. And I, I've just that just really annoyed me about that. So, um, yeah, I, I really didn't like seeing that comment from that journalist. Yeah, you've got, to throw, you've got to throw it before Laura comes in. You have to throw the book at this individual. You just can't, you've got to ban him for life from all football grounds. Because you've got to consequence these individuals because that's the only way to stop them from doing it again or stop their mate from doing it. Or like those, those people at West Brom who stormed the pitch and you have to just ban them for life. And then they'll soon, like their mates won't do it in the future, will they? Or they're, do you know what, it's, it's I, I don't know how to deal with it, but it's, it seems like the criticism around the referees and the blame, especially from managers, they're blaming referees for everything. And this is what is culminated in. Yeah, probably. Like we're always going to have football players and managers to flex stuff onto referees, and we can't kind of make the leap from that to referees getting attacked. A referee getting attacked is the fault of the individual that's that's running onto the pitch and stuff like that. You're right. You need to throw the book at him, ban him from all football grounds and all pubs, just to be annoying. Like you said, his mates won't. Do, his mates won't want to do it in future. He'd have ruined it, and. Um, yeah, look, I just think that if you give an inch, people to take a mile. And if, if people can see that that's possible without getting massive repercussions, it might happen again. And next time it might be slightly worse and then slightly worse. And then what does it take to actually throw the book at someone? So, yeah, do it now, quash it, and hopefully we won't see it again. Yeah, the only worrying thing is with these kind of individuals is these are the type, like, these type of fellas who do stuff like this don't give a fuck. They don't care if they, they get punished. Like, do you remember... Um, maybe six, seven weeks ago, those two Sheffield Wednesday fans yeah. who um, who held up a picture of Bradley Lowry to the Sunderland fans and were doing some like, obscene gestures to him, uh, about him. And it's like, and, and I think um, a WhatsApp conversation with him and his mates got leaked and basically he said, I don't care what, like, I don't actually care. And th- these are the type of individuals you're dealing with. Because yeah. they don't even care about the consequences. So it's difficult. It's really difficult to police. And to be fair, Simon Jordan always says this on um, talk sports, sticking up for like England fans and stuff. Where is the divide between like a social issue and a football issue? Like, like you say, these people don't care regardless. So they, whether they're at a football ground, at the cinema, in the pub, in the middle of town, they don't care. They're probably going to do stupid things anyway. It's not yeah. football's fault. Do you know what I mean? It's just those people's fault. And unfortunately, it's about eradicating... Um, those behaviours from people rather than calling it football fans yeah. just because it happened at a football game. Yeah, you're right, actually, chaps. You can try and police a game or try and like condense down the hours that people can drink before a game, all of those sort of things. But ultimately, that's hmm. it's not football's place to do that in regards to they're probably not going to be able to make a difference to these people because it's societal issues rather than just a Saturday three o'clock issue they're not they don't just get revved up for that and then be normal humans Monday to Friday and on Sunday I doubt um so yeah it's really difficult one to solve but I think a really interesting point Tomo how much the media are on at refs VAR EFL I spoke um 
to, to cover people at the weekend about how the standard of the referee in the EFL is absolutely shambolic and they don't want VAR, but the result, the like kind of decisions made in that are absolutely farcical. <clears throat> and managers come out and blame defeats uh, on the referees that they are public enemy number one. So if you're in that kind of cob, uh, that sort of stand in that kind of mob mentality, all of your hatred's directed to that one bloke, isn't it? And it only takes one person who's got the bollocks, basically, to run onto the pitch that they're yeah. going to do it. Yeah, well, and this is this all sort of... The reason why we've got bad standard, standards of refereeing is because there's not enough referees getting trained up to do it and no one wants to do it. So there's a Yeah, because you start off in Sunday roots, Sunday league football, and these people who are running onto the pitch to get at refs are the people playing on a Sunday. So they're just yeah, punching well, refs and starting on refs and harassing refs at the game that they're actually involved in. So why on earth would you get into refereeing and try and make a living or a career out of it? I know, yeah. It's, um, and it, I hate the, the whole argument. This is a different topic for another day, I guess. But I hate the argument where your Graham Soonesses of this world and Danny Murphy's just go, oh, we well, just put ex-players in the VAR, VAR room and it will work. And it's like, well, ex-players disagree on decisions all the time. Yeah. So not every ex player is gonna gonna get every decision right. It's just complete bullshit. We are we're just we live in a ble- blame culture and a and a society where every it's everyone else's fault except yourself. And this in football obviously that culminates in blaming the referee and the officials for everything. So it's it's a shame, but and these incidents I guess pop up because of that. Or that's a ma- like a major factor for why it's happening. Can I just say, I do personally think it would help enormously, not just from like an accountability point of view, but from like a, a human kind of emotional level, if we could hear from the refs after games and give them a chance to say, I know this has been discussed, but say why they made a certain decision or maybe hold their hands up and say, oh, I didn't see it like that. Really sorry. I think that would draw out a lot of the hatred and frustration towards referees because yeah. you see them on more of a personal level. Um, like you, like we see Howard Webb, for instance, at the Sky Sports Studios, or doing those programs now as the head of the PGMOL, and you kind of like the guy, and you, you're seeing how he's come into a certain decision. Um, so I think they should do that. I think they should come out after the games, and if there's a big decision, just front up to it, particularly at the high level where they're obviously getting paid a bit more money, and maybe people will be because one of the biggest frustrations about towards refs, particularly for players and managers and then that goes into fans as well is how kind of like um ignorant they are and arrogant they are towards things and they'll just be like no go away go away and i know there's got to be a certain degree of respect but that goes two ways at least come out and say look i got that wrong or look i gave a penalty because of this reason you might not agree but i thought that was a pen and then you've got more of a human interaction and i think more ability to forgive or understand rather yeah. than just a guy throwing his hand in your face, being ignorant and pissing you off, which yeah. is how we all feel about referees sometimes. But in in the individual referees' defence, I would probably suggest most of them agree with you, Laura, but it's the PGMOL who are saying, no, don't say anything, or yeah. do you know what I mean? Don't put your foot in it. Um, and actually, I don't know what you boys think of this. I think maybe six months ago, there were stories knocking about of um, the a sort of drive to survive style documentary series following the referees. And it would, I guess it would humanize them. Um, I don't know whether that would work well um, in humanizing them because these 
these TV shows, the, all these documentaries following sports still need the, the heroes and the villains and the storylines to work. But it might be good just to, to see, well, just to see that these officials are human and they've got yeah. families and they've got, and, and this is how the, like a bad decision will affect them just as it, much as it affects you, yeah. the team that is, who's supported. Um, oh, I don't know. I think a perfect instance of that, boys, has been that referees who've since retired, you listen to on podcasts, be it an Under the Cosh or Mike Dean going on the Peter Crouch podcast and then going to like Crouch Fest and stuff like that. And I just instantly see them as better blokes. Like I thought Mike Dean was a pretty bang average ref and a bit of a dick. But like I listen to him on podcasts and when he's in the studio now sometimes, isn't he in games? I actually think he's an all right fella. Like you then have seen photos of him going and watching, I think is it Tranmere that he's a fan of. And it's like, Actually, this guy's all right. And so if you could do that whilst they're in the middle of their careers, maybe there'd but, be a bit less flack on them. But, but Mike Dean's a really good example of, he went on Simon Jordan's podcast, the Upfront podcast, and he, he told a story of how he tried to help Anthony Taylor, because he was the VAR official, he tried to help Anthony Taylor in a decision because he was his mate. And everyone clipped that little bit up for that week um, on social media and accused him of being or lacking integrity as a referee. And so that's an example of how being open and honest can go two ways and it could go against you as a referee. And he got absolutely slated for it. So, yeah. But he only that, said that that's he only said that in retrospect. He's retired now. If you were coming out week to week and facing the media, of course you wouldn't say stuff like that. But I think what you said about like a behind the scenes, like Drive to Survive, all the people that come out of those documentaries, Ronnie O'Sullivan one lately, I think there's going to be a darts one, the golf one, everyone comes out with way more respect. You come out like with a, a newfound admiration for the people in there because you see what they go through and stuff, and it does humanise them. And unless you're this, that CEO from Sunderland that wanted to change the run-out music to Darude, you come away with a lot more credit than you go in with. And there's something's got to be done because they get no respect whatsoever, let's be honest with you, until you actually start hearing from them on podcasts later on and they feel more free to be human. So. I think that's something to definitely look into. I'm not blaming refs, Tigo. I understand it's their bosses or um, the referee control group that make those decisions, but I think they should look at it. I think, right, if we do that, A, there's probably a load of money to be made in a programme like that, but B, um, it can't be any worse than it is now, can it? Yeah, yeah. The, the, just going back full circle on obviously this being the Portsmouth for Port Vale, there might need to be a little bit of thinking. That would probably be your top refs, wouldn't it, in your Premier League and your VARs and the household names we all know. Um, where there's probably work that needs to be done even more so is in your EFL referees who potentially don't have VAR to fall back on and probably then be able to blame and be the talking points to take the heat of. It's what can we do to humanise EFL refs as well um, in, in games like Portsmouth. Port Vale. Just to round up some of the other EFL games, boys. Um, so Bolton and Derby both won at the weekend, uh, but Peterborough drew and Barnsley actually lost there. Um, EFL game on midweek for League One, Oxford versus Portsmouth. Um, Oxford obviously in the playoff hunt, Portsmouth right up there at the top, Bolton hot on their heels. So really big game that one. And just some results from League Two. Stockport won five one at Doncaster. They're now five points clear after a little bit of a blip. They're right back on track, but that's kind of down to teams around them dropping some points as well. Mansfield lost at Wimbledon. They've now not won in four uh, and only won one in their last six league games. Barrow and Notts County both in the playoff hunt. Drew uh, and Crew they lost three two at, against Salford. Uh, I think Smith scored a hat trick for Salford there 
And um, their manager, Carl Robinson's come in and made an instant impact at Salford, as I think we tipped him to. So, yeah, good week for Stockport, actually, with all the other sides uh, around them. But League Two, obviously, as interesting as ever. Laura, come to you now. Just want you to reflect a little bit on the one-all draw at St Albans for Yeovil. Obviously, we've got um, Slough at home tomorrow. Touch on that. Um, I think Reese Murphy, Jake Hyde and Smith all out tomorrow. The first two being a bit more long-term, if we can just uh, get a bit of a Glover's update. Yeah, well, we drew at the weekend, which ended our five-game winning run. No problem going to a team like St Albans and drawing. They're probably one of, if not the best football inside I've seen us play this season when when I watched us at home. So going and getting a point there is absolutely fine. We're way above two points a game this season and we're 10 points clear. The, the w- worry is the injuries. When we signed Reese Murphy and Jake Hyde at the start of the season, the risk was that they were players with injury records and they were prone to having time on the sidelines. I think we've done well to get to nearly February and have them both available for pretty much the whole season. So I'm not overly worried about that. We've just put Ollie Thomas back in on loan from Bristol City. He really impressed at the start of the season. But the big one is Michael Smith. Um, our right back, our ex-Northern Ireland international defender who has completely changed the way that we play, both defensively and even probably more so going forward from right back. He's one of the best players we've ever had at the club. I can say that already. And he limped off with a hamstring injury. And when he's not there, I mean, he's been an ever-present since he came in in September. Before that, we were losing and drawing games a lot more than we are now. So Slough at home tomorrow. It's a game in hand to go back to 13 points clear. And I just feel like tomorrow's a big game. I know it's stupid to say because we're 10 points clear, but if we win tomorrow, we go into February 13 points clear in a season that ends in April. If we lose, it could kind of set a tone for a bit more of a negative spell, which we really don't want and haven't really had this season since the opening kind of couple of games. So decision to be made at right back. Glad that we've got Ollie Thomas through the door. Big game at home to Slough that we need to win to really consolidate our position as sort of runaway um title holders and hopefully we will do that so looking forward to Hewish part tomorrow and I want three points desperately yeah up the Glovers um, yeah say get back on track they've drawn a game that's the standard that they've set this season but uh, hopefully get back to winning ways against Slough tomorrow um, and hopefully with Murphy and Hideout still plenty of options there to put the ball in the back of the net Laura I'm going to come back to you as well actually uh, you are up for trivia uh, this week so Obviously, I had my four pools question um, and we had a couple that did get four out of four, actually. So congratulations to them who uh, messaged in on Twitter about that. But you're up this week, so let us have it. Well, as you know, I'm an EFL man. Um, And since 2004, when the EFL was rebranded from the nationwide Division 1, 2 and 3 into the Coca-Cola Championship League 1 and 2, 20 years ago, there have only been two men in the championship that have won the golden boot twice. Can our listeners name them? And that's, they've won the championship golden boot. They've won the championship golden boot twice. In the last Mm. 20, the championship Mm. is 20 years old. It used to be called division one. When they rebranded, it was the championship. So since 2004, we've had 20 seasons and the golden boot has only ever been won twice by the same player twice. Which two players yeah. are they? Good stuff. Yeah, if you're listening, reach out on uh, social media or on YouTube or message in and say uh, say what you think if you know that. Um, but we'll reveal the uh, answer on, on later in the week's pod. And boys, that's all we've got time for today. But we'll be back on Friday this week. Um, we've obviously got the full 
fixture list of uh, of Premier League. So we're going to let those Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday games play out and come back Friday to uh, to have a look at any of the key action from there and preview the, the weekend fixtures. But pleasure as always, boys. Cheers. Cheers, boys. One, two, three.